Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. As you know, this podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Have you checked out the Agora Podcast Network feed? There's fun things on it. I did some stuff. Check that out. Anyway, as you are also aware, this podcast is supported primarily by you, the viewers. This program was made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And those of you who donate or use Patreon to support this podcast on a regular basis are the main thing that keeps the lights on and keeps me getting up every morning to do the podcast. Well, not in the morning. I have a day job. But you are the guys who keep me coming back to the desk at weird hours to do what snippets of work that I can between the other things I have going on in my life. Those who donate or are patrons are worthy of honor and praise. This month we have two such individuals. First up, we have patron Mark, who shall be known henceforward throughout the fields and valleys of this kingdom as Mark, the stress headache of Europe. Up next, we have Kenneth, whose worthy deeds have earned him the following honor. Kenneth shall now be known as George. Thank you to both Mark, the stress headache of Europe, and George for your worthy deeds in support of this kingdom. And now, our show. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. These are their stories. 12th century London, presumably in a shed. Those that ply their several trades, the vendors of each several thing, the hirers out of their several sorts of labour, are found every morning, each in their separate quarters, and each engaged upon his own peculiar task. Moreover, there is in London, upon the river's bank, amid the wine that is sold from ships and wine cellars, a public cook shop. There... Daily, according to the season, you may find viands, dishes, roast, fired and boiled, fish, great and small, the coarsest flesh for the poor, the more delicate for the rich, such as venison and birds both big and little. Those who desire to fare delicately need not search to find sturgeon or guinea fowl or Ionian francolin, since all the dainties that are found there are set forth before their eyes. In the suburb, immediately outside one of the gates... There is a smooth field, both in fact and in name, Smithfield. On every sixth day of the week, there is a much-frequented show of fine horses for sale. Thither come all the earls, barons and knights who are in the city, and with them many of the citizens, whether to look on or to buy. It is a joy 
to see the ambling palfreys, their skins full of juice, their coats a-glisten. Then, as they pace softly, in alternation, raising and putting down the feet on one side together. Next, to see the horses that best befit esquires, moving more roughly yet nimbly as they raise and set down the opposite feet, fore and hind, first on one side and then on the other. Then the younger colts of high breeding, unbroken and high-stepping with elastic tread, and after them the costly destriers of graceful form and goodly stature, with quivering ears, high necks and plump buttocks. As these show their paces, the buyers watch first their gentler gait, then that swifter motion, wherein their forefeet are thrown out and back together, and the hind feet also, as it were, counterwise. In another place apart, stand to the wares of the country folk. Folk, instruments of agriculture, long-flanked swine, cows with swollen udders, and woolly flocks and bodies huge of kine. Mares stand there, meat for the ploughs, sledges and two-horse carts. The bellies of some are big with young. Round others move their offspring, newborn sprightly foals, inseparable followers. A description of the most noble city of London, written by William Fitzstevens, reprinted in Those Who Worked, a Compendium of Sources, by Peter Speed. Quote read by David Crowther of the History of England podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 57, Class System Part 3, Commoners Part 2, Urban Commoners Part 5, Living Conditions. Last time out, which wasn't that long ago, we looked at how the class system came to be in the cities of Europe. The main takeaway is that while we can, with some justice, divide these cities into an upper, middle, and lower class, identity within these cities really flowed from the interconnected network of households that made up the economic, political, and social life of the city. It was only at the top that a class identity had formed, and at the very bottom, where people were truly destitute and lived apart from ties of kinship or friendship. Today we're going to try and answer one simple question. What was it like living in a medieval city? As usual, the complexity of the answer is belied by its simplicity. We have a whole heck of a lot to cover, and I'm definitely cramming this into one go, because we need to get to the investiture controversy eventually, so let's start in the usual place, the received narrative. In brief, the received narrative portrays medieval cities as revolting, unhygienic disaster areas whose governments were completely incapable of providing an acceptable standard of living for their neighbors. I think this narrative is simplistic and rests on a lot of evidence that's either misunderstood or misrepresented. Rather than my usual long philosophical introduction, I think for today I'm just going to simply set a few methodological observations, ground rules, bullet points, whatever. Number one, in our analysis, we can't expect people in the Middle Ages to share modern goals for living standards. They had no understanding of germ theory, no modern engineering handbooks, and we just can't blame them for that. They had a different culture with different goals. Two, conditions in early medieval cities have to be described as much as possible based on information about that period in particular, and not on conditions in the early modern period or later in the medieval period, or things like that, no matter how much better documented that period may be. This is, of course, fully impossible, so there are some places where we're going to be reasoning by metaphor based on time periods that are as close as we can get. 
for the record, though, we're attempting to talk about the years roughly from 700 to 1200, with most emphasis being on the years 900 to 1200. Number three, we have to frame information about these cities in the context of the four dimensions of space and time. For example, if you find in the records of a city that there were half a dozen complaints in the legal record about the water supply, you might be tempted to say that the city in question was failing to deal with the water supply issue. But what if all those complaints happened over the course of three centuries, and we could even group them into two separate incidents? Well, then you might have to say that the city in question had a problem with water at one point, fixed it for 150 years, then outgrew that water supply, had more complaints, and then upgraded again. Determining which narrative is correct requires detailed work that we don't have time for. From my perspective as a practicing urban planner, this tendency of many commentators to focus on complaints over a very long period and lump them together as a description of just baseline conditions is grimly familiar. People tend to only pay attention when things go wrong, and they may condemn a system as fundamentally broken even when it works perfectly for years at a time. One of the main things we get taught in methodology courses in planning school is to ignore this more charitably, to understand this phenomenon and try and find ways to see through it. In general, when assessing policy decisions, we have to understand that we do not have a random sample. The things that we're most likely to hear about are complaints rather than praise, etc. So with these ground rules set, we have one more thing to do before we begin. It would be way too difficult and complex to attempt to encompass the entire concept of living conditions in one go, like literally books have been written about this. So I'm going to break down this episode into three separate discussions about somewhat specific topics, these topics being public health, homicide, and business regulations. These three areas should sort of help give us an idea of how successfully these cities were able to govern themselves and allow us to reach something of a reasonable sketch about what life was like in a medieval city. So first up, without any further ado, public health. This is actually the one I find the most fun. It's very hard to divorce our view of medieval public health from our modern scientific perspective, but we have to. Primary sources depict conditions that are, to modern eyes, completely disgusting, and to modern sensibilities, obviously the cause of outbreaks of illness. There is a certain tendency to be frustrated with the city authorities for their failure to assess the causes of these problems and resolve them, but of course this view has a pretty obvious flaw. Germ theory wasn't definitively proved in a public health context until 1854, at which time effective remedies to the suddenly obvious health crisis were fairly rapidly found and implemented, at least in the developed world. While this doesn't prove that medieval cities could have reacted in the same way, it's also unfair to judge cities in the Middle Ages based on knowledge that they just didn't have. Medieval theories of illness and epidemiology were based on some combination of a view that illness was created by an imbalance of humors, evil spirits, and amongst some of the more forward-thinking people, the miasma theory of medicine, which said that illness was caused by bad smells. The connection between these factors and disease was always spotty at best, which left city governments and citizens alike to try and arrive at public health policy based on the most rudimentary of metrics. They knew that you probably shouldn't eat rotting food, water should be visibly clean, and that things that smelled bad were probably not healthy to have around. Also, if you did something that made God mad, as an individual or as a society, you could be punished with outbreaks of horrible diseases. 
So if something looked or smelled bad or was offensive to God, it was probably dangerous and needed to be removed. Now, obviously, the stuff about offending God wouldn't make modern muster, and we're going to be talking about that more in future episodes. But let's not entirely discount the powers of sight, smell, touch, and taste. Evolution gave these abilities, in part, to help us avoid things that might kill us. Except evolution also made us omnivores. If you're not familiar with what an omnivore is, it means that we are the living garbage disposals of the natural world, uh, only slightly elevated above pigs. While some animals specialize in hunting meat or grazing on grass, our ancestors went around shoving things in their mouths to see what would kill them. A big part of our success as a species comes down to the fact that we are one species which can eat lutefisk, pressed liquefied olive fat, and fermented mare's milk. Not only do we eat these things, the people who do it regularly claim that it's good for you and has very important health benefits. There are entire spas in far eastern Russia that are devoted to the consumption of fermented mare's milk. Long story short, things that humans considered bad or good-smelling are far too dependent on culture and upbringing to constitute an objective standard which we could use to protect ourselves from illness. And then, of course, there's the fact that lethal doses of things like cholera are colorless, odorless, and tasteless in water. So from our modern point of view, the people of the Middle Ages were basically doomed from the start due to their lack of epidemiological theory and the tools which they had available, which were highly subjective and prone to getting them killed. But this is all a bit unfair. No, they could not have prevented regular outbreaks of illness, which we can prevent. But if they were able to keep themselves from eating rotten food, from drinking water that seemed tainted, and if they were able to eliminate refuse from their environment, it would certainly have made their day-to-day -day life more pleasant and would probably have had health benefits. I would venture that you will not find a doctor in the world who will say that, all things being equal... Eating fresh food, untainted water, and living without being surrounded by trash is probably more healthy than the alternative. So in terms of public health, there are a few conversations to be had, but in the interest of time, I'm going to try and focus this conversation. The provision of hygienic food is actually something I'm going to cover later in a discussion of business regulations in this episode, and I'm actually going to skip a discussion about adequate potable water supplies because I actually didn't find enough sources on the topic for the early Middle Ages. So that leaves us two topics for today. The elimination of waste and the regulation of what we in the biz called nuisance uses. Waste, in the context of a medieval city specifically, but also in general, is kind of a very broad term. It can encompass everything from what we might call trash to everything that we might call sewage. It seems that in medieval villages, there was no set method for dealing with this issue. The issue namely being that you needed to get rid of this stuff. In most places, trash and human waste would ultimately be placed in a waterway or in an out-of-the-way dump. These dumps are incidentally great for archaeologists, but not all places used dumps. As town size grew, both options, uh, the waterway and the dump, they became unreliable. Dumps became unreliable because there was no room, and waterways became unreliable because most of the population lived too far away from the river to go there to do their, their business on the regular, and it was just not a convenient place to go to in general. So the ways that this was dealt with varied from place to place, but in general, the records suggest a kind of a progressive process. 
Early on, the streets would have been made of packed dirt, and waste could have been disposed of in latrines, cesspits, and waste dumps on the property, as was done in rural villages. When the waste built up, it could be taken down to the river for disposal or what have you. Water would be drawn at wells on the property, or in, at local wells in the neighborhood, or just from the river. Now, as the town grew, all of the private space was filled in with buildings, which means that there's no more room for, like, outhouses and, and all that that implies, and you don't have room on your property for a well anymore, probably. So the only place for waste to go was into a public space, a.k.a. the street. Needless to say, having refuse pile up in an unpaved street made rainstorms particularly unpleasant, particularly if you needed to walk anywhere. This brings us to our first governmental action. Once the dirt streets became choked with refuse, most cities would eventually take the step to pave the streets. Now, this was done in such a way that roads sloped down to the middle, into a single ditch in the middle of the street. This is actually the opposite of how we design streets today, but there is a method to this madness. All of the gutters on all the buildings in the town were required to vent out into the street, so that what this did was effectively take all the water that fell as rain on a block of the city, it, it would fall on the roof, go into the gutter, go down the drain, and then shoot out into the street, where then it would be focused down into this single ditch. Rainstorms would cause huge streams of water in the streets, and that would wash the refuse away, which is actually pretty clever. While clever, no system works entirely unmanaged. So part two of this design was that the city had to pay a staff of people to go around and sweep out the ditches in the streets. If they didn't, the ditches would get clogged with refuse, and the streets would flood with sewage, and the city would basically be back to where it started. The management of these crews differed from place to place. In some places, the government directly paid street sweeping crews. In others, the guilds oversaw this work in their quarter of the city. In some places, the street cleaners were simply given a monopoly as private contractors, and they were expected to make a living from a combination of fees from landowners and selling the refuse to farmers. We're going to get back to that. That may sound weird, but we're going to get back to that. Whether any of this was enough must inevitably be a conversation that is had on a case-by-case -case basis based on evidence from an individual city. This reliance on street center ditches and street sweeping crews for the removal of waste and other refuse is obviously highly unsatisfactory to modern eyes and did lead to complaints about smell and dirt over the years. On a day-to-day -day basis, pedestrians would have to dodge refuse in the street as well as refuse raining down from upper story windows. It is worth saying that not all cities even managed the task of paving the streets, and of those that did, we should probably expect that not all the streets were paved equally. So if you lived in some out-of-the-way alley, chances are that that alley was pretty nasty. All the same, that street center ditch system was pretty clever, given the resources available at the time. Without an industrial economy, creating a network of uh, underground pipes would have been a challenge to produce and install, let alone maintain, and without flush toilets, it just wouldn't have been efficient in the first place. And of course, flush toilets wouldn't be invented for many years yet. Given the goals of the time, which were mostly focused on controlling bad smells, a well-run street cleaning staff could probably keep a moderately sized city in decent shape. At least the refuse in the street wouldn't pile up past the capacity of the system to actually get rid of it, eventually. This definitely counts as good enough shape when you consider the fact that smell is a highly adaptable sense. It would probably help if it rained a lot in your city and you didn't live too close to the river. 
And on that note, I said I was not going to get into drinking water today, but suffice it to say that I would personally prefer to live upriver from other settlements rather than downriver. for fun facts you didn't want to know with Ben the Planner. This is an important topic, but I can't find anywhere else, so here it goes. What is the difference between a latrine, an outhouse, a cesspit, and a septic system? Well, I'm glad no one asked. <laughs> a latrine is a trench or hole dug into the ground for the disposal of waste. Solid waste stays in the hole or trench. Liquids soak into the soil. Latrines are gross, but not dangerous so long as they are used for a limited period of time and then covered. Latrines are acceptable for armies on the march, but can become dangerous and gross if too many are dug in a small area. Notably, the trench or hole may overfill, with predictably unfortunate effects. If too many latrines are dug in an area, the ground may become saturated with waste and become... unstable. A cesspit is like a latrine, but permanent. A hole is dug and lined with something like dry rock walls, which allow water to pass out of the waste deposits. Since a large amount of the volume of waste is actually liquid, and since the solid parts begin breaking down very quickly thanks to microbial processes, a generously sized cesspit can remain useful for a very long time, even for a large household. All the same, it will eventually fill up, and then it will need to be emptied. During the Middle Ages, a so-called night soil men made a good business in this job, even if they were never popular at parties. These men would, upon payment from the landowner, come up with a wagon and hand tools and hand shovel out the contents of a cesspit onto the wagon, not popular at parties. Because the majority of the contents of the pit would have had lots of time to decompose, this so-called night soil was actually a valuable fertilizer in an age when such things were actually pretty hard to find and pretty valuable. And so the night soil men would haul their load off to the nearest farm and sell it for another tidy sum to a farmer who would then spread it on their fields to grow food to sell back to the city. Incidentally, those street sweepers were doing the same thing. Ah, the circle of life. If you're wondering, no, that kind of thing would not pass modern health and safety guidelines today. Dietary loops between fertilizer and consumption are not okay. That said, there are some similar attempts to recycle the solid outputs of many city wastewater treatment plants. I don't have time to go into a whole bunch of detail, though if you're interested, ask me to discuss it in October. It's interesting. Suffice it to say that most cities have found some way to reuse the solid matter removed from sewage, and that a few have even wrapped them into composting programs, but that the new process involves several trips through an incinerator, an industrial scale, and enough health and safety inspections to make even a devoted bureaucrat like myself a little bit cranky. Especially after the E. coli outbreaks of the last few years, you probably don't have to worry about anything recognizable as human waste being used to grow your lettuce. Moving on. Modern septic systems are in some ways like old cesspits, but much better designed because science and land use regulations. If you want to know more, ask me on Facebook or Twitter. This isn't really something I want to spend a lot of time on today. Now, latrines, cesspits, and septic tanks are only part of the story. That is really where the waste ends up. We also need to talk about the accommodations for the individual making the deposit. Donut hole seats, toilet seats, have been around since antiquity, and seem common enough in European archaeology. The best case scenario was that a user would be provided with a well-built seat over a hole in a sturdy wooden platform. The platform was then placed over the latrine or cesspit. 
Wealthy households probably had these reliably, though seats can't be assumed even in modern Western Europe. Uh, holes over which a person might squat were much more common in human history, and probably were common even in wealthy households in the Middle Ages. All the same, potty squatting has a long and noble tradition, and so long as the platform upon which you squatted was stable, you could count yourself as lucky. Unfortunately, since we learn most of what we know about daily life in the Middle Ages from court documents, you should probably prepare yourself for what follows. In many, if not most, medieval residences, arrangements were much more ad hoc. As in, not even a small hole in a wooden platform, just the gaping maw of the cesspit itself. The user had to precariously balance over the edge of the cesspit. Sometimes a bar was available for grasping. This had a name in some languages. In some instances, there was no bar available. When you factor in that many cesspits were in the basement, a room with little or no light even in the daytime, and given that the walls of the cesspit could become unstable after years of dampness, and they often didn't have mortar in the first place, well, you end up with a fairly grim record in the mortuary reports. Many was the person who met a very unpleasant end in a dark basement as they groped around blindly, seeking to relieve themselves at night. As a result, most people avoided using such facilities at night, preferring to use temporary containers in their bedrooms that could be dumped out the window in the morning. All the same, cesspits on property were a big convenience for residents and a great benefit for the city as a whole. If even a portion of the human waste being generated by a property could be contained in situ, it reduced the pressure on the street cleaning crews and the road center drain system. As a result, many cities would eventually require that landlords provide a cesspit in the basement of all buildings. What this did to the water supply is a different story. End podcast footnote. The other big public health hazard of the Middle Ages that was regulated by city councils are what we in the biz call nuisance uses or point source pollution. This is a situation where the way a landowner is using their property is potentially dangerous or annoying to their neighbors. This could be due to poor maintenance, or it could be from a use of a property that's inherently damaging. So a maintenance issue might be like if I were to pile up trash along my neighbor's fence and they got a rat infestation. An inherently damaging modern use might be something like if I built a bar that played loud music at night. While this might be a good thing to have in a city in general, I like bars, loud music might also damage the quality of life of my neighbors. And so therefore, we have regulations that control where you can do this kind of thing. Almost every town we have records of passed laws regulating at least some of these issues at some point. The maintenance issue is the easiest to deal with. Civil courts produced volumes of case law requiring property owners who failed in their maintenance responsibilities to compensate their neighbors for damages that resulted from their failure and repair the offending problem. And if they didn't, they would face fines, jail time, and even corporal punishment. As it happens, civil courts were in many ways much more effective in the Middle Ages than the criminal courts. This has a lot to do with the way the legal system developed out of a sort of state-sponsored conflict mediation system. The system was principally intended for dealing with what we would call civil disputes, and the goal was preventing these minor conflicts from turning violent. Having a respected noble weigh in as a moderator and make a judgment that everyone could just agree upon was a good way to resolve these issues. Effectively, what happened is that the government, in the person of the Lord, was thought to have a civil stake in law and order as a concept, and they became a party in civil disputes against someone who had committed a crime. 
At the end of the day, the goal was to subvert the cycle of blood feuds, which threatened to destabilize the Lord's power, but one can easily see how a criminal system based on this kind of civil structure would need some time to evolve. The real point is that the civil code worked pretty well. Even today, there's a lot of people who prefer to deal with issues through mediation, and mediation does have things to represent it. As far as nuisance uses go, then as now, we're mostly talking about industrial processes. Beef tallow kettles, tanneries, and their ilk generated extremely offensive odors, even for the time, and were often banished to the area outside the city walls. Particularly observant city councils would banish them to areas downriver from the city, though this was not always the case. Podcast footnote. A couple things. First off, an area I won't be dealing with in extensive detail today is the concept of moral health. This area is extremely complicated and is mostly going to be dealt with in another episode when I talk about life for the clergy. There will also be an episode for much later when we talk about sex work in the Middle Ages. Suffice it to say that the city fathers of the Middle Ages made the construction of churches as much of a priority as the construction of roads and defensive walls, as they served the spiritual defense of the city. On the other hand, the same regulations that banished the production of beef tallow also banished brothels and theaters to the edge of the city limits, thus taking their contamination away. London's South End was famously just such a red-light district. Suffice it to say that the functional mechanisms were the same as nuisance law in the way that these laws were carried out. Now, two other things. The two uses that are most consistently banned in the records are beef tallow production and tanneries. I should just say to modern audiences why this was a thing. Beef tallow. It's fat. Beef fat. Uh, This is useful industrially for a bunch of different things, but the two primary things are as a cooking substance uh, and for candles. uh, Low-quality, cheap candles. The way you produce beef tallow is that you get a big vat and you boil a bunch of beef parts. Given the way that, you know, people were starving in the Middle Ages, you were probably not necessarily getting the most fresh beef parts. So this was smelly. My mom actually told me a tale where she actually made beef tallow candles at one point a couple decades back, and they never did it again. They got, they were able to make the candles, but the whole house smelled like beef roast for, like, ages. Take that, plus the smell of rotting, and you can understand why beef tallow production was not necessarily popular to have as a neighbor. Tanneries were worse. Tanning is the process of turning skin into leather. Beef leather, whatever. What you notice if you've ever worked with rawhide is what rawhide is, is you take skin and you just dry it and it turns into this really tough thing. You could like bang it on something and it it would make a noise. What we want with leather is something that's floppy and soft and, you know, at least is somewhat pliable. Uh, And then, of course, often you want to dye it. So, um, and you need to get all the hair off of it, too. So, there's a whole concoction of horrible chemicals that get used. And, of course, in the Middle Ages, they didn't necessarily have DuPont down the street who was able to give them these horrible chemicals. So, what they used was a variety of sources of chemicals that included human waste as a way to generate some of the chemicals that they needed in order to soften and dye these, uh, these leather products. Again, you can see why it wouldn't be popular to have as a neighbor, and why the city councils uh, banished them to downriver. End podcast footnote. How effective these various public health laws were is fairly complicated to assess. 
It's easy to come to the conclusion that these regulations were utter failures, because the legal records and primary sources are full of repeated complaints about issues like filth removal and nuisance uses. On the other hand, as I said in the introduction, the mere presence of complaints doesn't mean that the city's efforts were failures. You have to ask, over what time span were these complaints issued? What was the result of each complaint? What was the overall result in terms of actual public health outcomes? Now, I've not done a really detailed study of the records, so I may be misrepresenting some of the evidence I have, but my reading of the records I have available suggests that historians are, by and large, unnecessarily unkind to medieval city governments. What I'm seeing can be summarized as follows. Number one, these laws probably did not stop anyone from dying of dysentery. All the waste from the city was being vented in the river, and most people still got their drinking water from the river. The ones who didn't get it from the river were getting it from public wells, which were on the same street as a bunch of cesspits. People got dysentery. That said, it's completely unreasonable to expect people from before 1854 to have realized the full gravity of the situation. The processes undertaken by the cities of the time attempted to tackle the problems as they understood them. If their successes were never permanent, they were also victims of moving goalposts, as city sizes continued to grow over the course of the period despite the sky-high death rates. This inevitably overwhelmed measures taken to combat public health issues over the years. On the other hand, this proves that city life was so attractive, or the living conditions so similar to those in the countryside, that people were willing to deal with sky-high death rates to live there. Regulations about maintenance requirements were mostly enforced by lawsuit. Once a complaint was brought, usually the offending party was required to make repairs and pay compensation. In most cases, they did so without too much trouble. This may seem a terribly ad hoc way to enforce the law and leave room for a lot of things to go wrong. And that's true. But to be honest, that's how much of the modern American legal system works. And it's the same in a lot of countries. For example, the Americans with Disabilities Act requires ramps and accessible entrances to all public buildings, amongst many other things. This law does not provide any funding to pay for this construction, nor for any enforcement. There are no building inspectors going, ah, you don't have a ramp. These provisions are generally enforced only by lawsuit when a disabled person is sufficiently inconvenienced or harmed by a situation that they can spend the money to hire a lawyer and go through the legal process and ultimately get satisfaction through the civil courts. This is an unconscionably terrible way to provide accessibility to those in our society who are most in need of our help, and yet the U.S. is considered a world leader in the provision of accessibility. It's kind of a disco's greatest hit sort of a thing, but you get my point. Governments can't put money into policing everything, and so it's often up to our neighbors to correct problems. This aspect of life in the Middle Ages is surprisingly similar to how maintenance is enforced nowadays. Point number three. Nuisance uses were generally removed from cities when laws were passed. There was corruption, and people who ignored the law, but one of the biggest results of this kind of thing was that it actually caused the cities to grow. Now, as we saw last time out, most people lived in their businesses, right? Now, most people would also want to keep their businesses and their homes inside the city wall, almost to the exclusion of any other consideration. After all, if you're outside the city wall, who knows what's going to happen to you? But if the tanners and tallow boilers and prostitutes were exiled outside the city wall, they would often end up building houses there as well, because they tended to live where they worked. Next thing you know, there's a new neighborhood outside the city walls, and eventually, uh, in wartime, something happens and the, the government would end up extending the walls. 
Now, building residences outside the walls was often technically illegal, and many historians cite repeated complaints about the growth of these supposedly illegal neighborhoods as evidence of the inability of the government to control land use in this period. But these historians have, by my reading, missed the contradiction in the laws. The city government had set up two laws that were at odds with each other, especially when human nature was factored in. That is to say, if you ban beef tallow production from inside the city walls and people need cheap candles, they're going to find a way to make the beef tallow. They're going to set up shop outside the city walls. And then the next thing you know, there's a neighborhood there. It's sort of an inevitable result. Let's move on to homicide rates. Medieval crime has become a large topic for two big reasons. First, it ties into modern conversations about crime and how to deal with it. Second, some of the only good written evidence we have of daily life in the Middle Ages, in documents not meant as a polemic or a religious document, come in the form of court records. The first and most basic thing to say about this topic is that, while life in general was much more dangerous in the Middle Ages than it is today, the risk from violent crime seems to have been astronomically higher. To give you some perspective on this, a quick crash course in crime statistics. It's standard practice nowadays to measure crime statistics per 100,000 people. That is to say, you take all the crime that happened in a place, divide them by the total population, and multiply the resulting number by 100,000. Why 100,000? Because they picked 100,000. Move on. The point of this exercise is that it helps us get away from things like the perception that New York City has a hugely bigger crime rate than, say, Camden, New Jersey. Because hundreds and hundreds more violent crimes happen in New York than in Camden. Of course more crime happened. New York City is bigger, both in terms of population and geographic area. Using crime per 100,000 doesn't completely eliminate this kind of methodological problem, but it definitely makes it easier to compare apples to apples. One last methodological note. These days we usually like to talk about violent crime in general rather than homicides in particular, but this creates problems in using historical records. It turns out that a lot of crime is socially constructed. Big surprise. But even in terms of homicide, we now make distinctions between things like homicide and various kinds of manslaughter that they might or might not have paid attention to in the Middle Ages. And that's not even getting into civilian deaths caused by war that modern war crimes tribunals would consider murder. But other kinds of violent crime are even harder to deal with, you know, uh, longitudinally over time. Sexual violence, to take the most extreme and troubling example, is hugely socially constructed, and definitions have changed greatly even within my adult lifetime. And that isn't even getting into the issue of reporting, where people who are victims of sexual assault tend to feel feelings of shame that make them not want to report it. So sexual crimes are heavily underreported. This is all very important, and sexual violence is a very important topic that's actually going to get its own episode at some point. But these changing definitions make longitudinal studies difficult for discussions like this, where we're just talking about a general uh, quality of life. And so it's been excluded from today's discussion, along with things like normal assault, armed robbery, and things like that. We're going to focus on homicides for this episode because, compared to these other categories, the definition is fairly unambiguous. If you want to dig into this issue more, whole colleges of historians and crime specialists have built careers around this issue, so have fun. My main source for this section was Long-Term Historical Trends in Violent Crime by Manuel Eisner, published in the 2003 edition of Crime and Justice, and uh, that's as good a place to start as any. It brings into play a lot of stuff that I knew beforehand, and its, its conclusions are followed on by subsequent commentators, so... So with all that out of the way, let's just get to some numbers to talk about context. 
Today, the U.S. murder rate per 100,000 is around 5, if you take the country as a whole. The most homicidal state in the United States is Louisiana, where the murder rate is right around 12. For the record, the murder rate in Europe as a whole is 1. One person per 100,000. The most homicidal city in the United States flips around every year, but the top cities are always between 50 and 60 per 100,000. For the record, I was looking at 2019 data, and St. Louis was in the lead, but like I said, these rankings swap around all the time. Every year, there's pretty much a new city on top. Obviously, there are a lot of issues with trying to establish violent crime rates for the Middle Ages. We basically just have no records for the years before 1000, and very few between 1000 and 1200, which is really what we're talking about today. What we do have are initially very scattered, and there's a bias towards urban areas. That said, after about 100 years of historians trolling through these datasets, some trends are basically irrefutable. When records start around 1100, the crime rate is somewhere between 20 and 50 per 100,000, depending on which country you're in, and these initial scattered records are basically confirmed and supported by the trends of the following few centuries. This is important because in those later centuries, the records became more common and had less of an urban bias. So the trend that we see from the earlier centuries is more or less supported by the, the years later when there's better data. Now, from my reading of the records, it seems somewhat likely that the crime rates were a little bit lower in the early part of our period, rose slightly through the 1300s and 1400s, and then began a long, and this is irrefutable, they began a long and fairly steady drop. And again, modern homicide rates in Europe, in general, are around 1 per 100,000, even when you factor in the media frenzy surrounding the knife killings in London. So I know that was a lot of numbers, but to summarize, records from the Middle Ages seem to indicate that in the period we're studying, European society as a whole was at least as violent as the most violent cities in the modern United States, and was probably as much as 10 times as violent as the modern US as a whole. But of course, this was actually taking place in Europe, and compared to Europe, Europe in the Middle Ages was 50 times more violent than it is today. There is a clear and obvious link between the rise of the modern state system and this very large and precipitous fall in crime rates. But what that link is remains a topic of rather intense debate. Starting in the 1300s in England and France, European monarchies began to consolidate their power. And by 1500, this process was in full swing across the continent in one way or the other. This is the same period in which homicide rates began their long downward trend. This observation is reinforced when you take a geographic approach to the data. The homicide rates dropped earliest in France and England, where centralization began soonest. Homicide rates remained high in the rest of Europe for many years, until centralization began there and then the homicide rates dropped there as well. As a quick aside, I don't want to offer a complete discussion of the impacts of the rise of the state system on criminal behavior right now. I want to do it in a later episode. Doing so now would require lengthy discussions of stuff we haven't gotten to yet. Presenting this narrative as I've done it so far was necessary to contextualize our discussion, but I'm going to be limiting my comments to the early part of the process today. So we know there is a correlation between state formation and the drop in the crime rate, but what can this tell us about crime before the process began? Correlation is, after all, not causation, and we're in really dangerous tautological territory here. After all, in the grand sweep of human history, it's the modern, very low crime rates that are actually the anomaly, not those of the Middle Ages. So how can we understand this without trying to read time backwards? Well, the place to start is those other societies in the grand sweep of human history. 
As in all so-called traditional societies, the need for security for oneself and one's family in the context of a society without strong social institutions required reliance on interpersonal connections, in a way that I've mentioned uh, occasionally already in the show, but which we can not really understand on a visceral level the way that people in the Middle Ages definitely did. Now, we need to be clear about what we're talking about here. The Hobbesian view of a war of all against all never really existed. Humans have always gotten their strength from their ability to act as a team, forming alliances of trust which allowed us to function. In traditional agricultural societies, though, where strangers seeking to steal from the farm are potentially just as dangerous as any wild animal or natural disaster, these interpersonal alliances were both doubly important and limited in size. Most such alliances were based on blood ties within a family, but in feudal societies, these bonds are supplemented by bonds of friendship and loyalty that go beyond the family. These bonds allow economic benefits, physical security, and the more warm and fuzzy benefits that we still derive from friendship today. Some of the non-family bonds we have talked about in this show are the ties between a lord and a vassal, the tie between a king and a subject, the tie between a cleric and a congregant, ties between local guild members, and ties between merchants from a distant land and the families that choose to host them. The flip side of this is that trust and reputation are extremely important to people in these contexts. If your reputation is damaged, people may begin to feel that they can't rely on you, and they are less likely to maintain their bonds with you. After all, if you find out someone is a liar, why would you trust them in a business transaction? The disintegration of these bonds can be critical, since the assistance they imply when times are bad can be the only thing that stands between your family and starvation. This issue is actually written into the laws of the guild codes of the time. In one guild code, which is reproduced in Those Who Worked, an anthology of sources by Peter Speed, it is clarified that a man with a good reputation would be given a certain amount of assistance if he fell on hard times that were not his fault. And it says the same about his widow, if she is also of good reputation. In the original text, the part about the reputation is presented as obvious and straightforward and kind of breezed past quickly. But it meant that if your family suffered from a scandal, you could be subject to starvation in an economic downturn. This all sounds very transactional, but in practice it manifested as a set of cultural norms that tended to value reputation and honor highly, even outside the upper classes. This need to retain your good name resulted in a large amount of self-policing of behavior, but it also made people more likely to want to get violent over things that we would consider petty. Minor insults could be seen as a threat to your reputation, and in this cultural context it was sometimes felt that preserving a reputation justified physical violence. Indeed, most medieval legal codes did allow for particularly bad insults as a mitigating circumstance for an assault or even a murder. Compounding this issue is the fact that it was comparatively easy to get away with crimes in the Middle Ages. I've mentioned before that housebreaking was originally a literal description of a crime made possible by the questionable construction practices of the time. So even if you locked your door, a murderer could come in through the wall. Beyond the physical capacity for security, the criminal justice system was highly flawed from a modern point of view due to its reliance on testimony and reputation. And there was just no institutionalized law enforcement. By way of example, the most common method of what we would call policing was the so-called hue and cry system. In this system, if you saw someone committing a crime, you were supposed to run out into the street and scream your head off, and anyone who could hear was supposed to come running your way and help you dogpile onto the criminal. The criminal would then be dragged in front of whatever authority was supposed to have jurisdiction. In the villages, it was the lord of the manor. In the cities, it was often the city council. Needless to say, the prisons of the time were hardly escape-proof, and of course anyone who did escape only needed to get into another manor or into a different city to make pursuit extremely difficult. Even the churches offered sanctuary to criminals. 
With crimes easy to get away with, and with personal alliances being the only protection available, traditional societies often rely on a system of vigilante justice and collective punishment for crimes. This works relatively well in small groups, but as society grows, the result is often a system of blood feuds between different groups. As we discussed in earlier episodes, the medieval legal system had begun to develop an institutional framework to prevent that kind of situation, but the system was not fully consolidated and existed in an unhappy parallel to a system of vengeance killings for many centuries. For the people moving into a medieval city, these factors are just the background noise. And I should say that no one of them can be said as responsible for the whole violent crime difference between now and then. For example, modern policing didn't start in England until the 1800s. But as I said, this was all just sort of background noise. These were the same conditions you left behind in the village. Thrust into a new social situation where many of those around them were strangers, in an era where social bonds made up for lack of institutions, violence was thus very common in medieval cities. For those of a decidedly criminal mindset, the lack of effective law enforcement and the economic growth of the era provided plenty of incentives for violent behavior. But even for regular people, the lack of a social context seems to have made it much more likely that poorly chosen words would lead to offense and a recourse to violence. The legal records are full of disputes arising from this kind of situation. If the victim of a murder was by themselves, their death might be the end of the story. But if they were a member of a guild, or they had a family, blood feuds could break out even in the cities of this time. While the threat of such an occurrence helped keep the main members of the groups on good behavior, and while such institutions as did exist helped prevent them from going completely out of control, if the participants were from the lower classes anyway, disputes amongst the upper semi-aristocratic members of the European urban society could rapidly devolve into an all-out war. This is a well-attested phenomenon in Italy, and occurrences are recorded in many northern European cities as well. That said, the responsibility of northern European cities to keep the peace was often a key part of their relationship with their lord, and this was still a very important relationship. This then tended to limit intra-communal conflicts one way or the other. Over time, institutions were developed to deal with these situations. Most notably, most cities would eventually develop a system of at least night watches, consisting of members of a town militia, the militarized members of the guilds, but... Whoever it was, they would patrol the town and try and end disorders. The system was hardly ideal from a modern perspective. The men were often unpaid volunteers, which could make them somewhat unenthusiastic about their duties. The men would not investigate crimes after the fact. That would be done by members of the city council if it was done at all. Uh, and the, if the watchman found something amiss, their recourse to dealing with it would often be a reliance on the old hue and cry system to apprehend the criminals that they found. While unreliable and open to abuse, this system was better than nothing, and generally city councils gradually refined and improved the system over time. Paying the poor guys was a nice start when it happened. It's fair to say that a gradual evolution of the legal system also helped this process along. There's one last topic of conversation which I would like to discuss today. The capacity of the city governments of the Middle Ages to regulate business. Now, in modern society, when we talk about business regulation, we often end up talking about things like social services, fiscal policy, and red tape. But this is really a separate topic. The kind of business regulation that I'm talking about here is much more basic and, if I might suggest it, far less controversial. Establishing things like standard units of measurement are taken for granted in modern society. They're so basic that when people bring them up in an electoral context, they often get laughed out of the room. This is more or less what happened to my ex-governor, uh, Lincoln Chafee who had the best haircuts of any governor ever. 
And yet pre-modern governments often struggled with setting up standard units of measurement and stable currencies, something that created a fair amount of economic chaos. After all, if a buyer and a seller don't agree on what a quote-unquote bushel of grain is, then someone is almost inevitably going to leave an economic exchange feeling cheated. If they did feel cheated, these merchants might tell all their friends not to do business in that particular city ever again. Or, more alarmingly, they might get their bands of heavily armed and highly paid mercenary guards to find a way to get satisfaction more directly. Either way, it was in the interest of the powers that were to find a way to set and enforce some basic rules of the road for these business transactions that, you know, didn't result in boycotts or massacres. City governments are regarded by historians as doing a relatively good job at dealing with these issues. Setting weights and measures is one of those areas where you don't really need someone to make a good decision, you just need them to make a decision. Like, deciding what side of the road to drive on. It doesn't really matter that England does it one way and we do it the other, so long as everyone in England does it one way, and everyone here does it a different way. By that same token, it doesn't really matter if a foot is 11 inches long or 12 inches long, so long as everyone agrees one way or the other. Political commentators of later ages would ultimately be frustrated by the fact that each city and feudal territory in Europe had different sets of weights and measures, and that could be a problem when you're doing international trade. But that isn't really the fault of each individual city government. That's just sort of an inevitable result of the decentralization of power in the Middle Ages. Within a given urban territory, our records show that many city governments were very clear and exacting about weights and measures, and that they took this duty seriously, and that they were very proactive about making sure everyone followed agreed standards. As a small aside, if you look at the history of fiscal policy and currency purity, it became a, a religious duty for the kings to have relatively pure currencies. It was actually considered like some sort of lying, and that it would bring down the wrath of God on a kingdom if they had currencies that were debased. Of course, they didn't understand about economics. So anyway, it's plausible that city governments felt the same way, although we have fewer records, so I'm not actually asserting that. Moving on. In cities with markets and fairs, it was common for members of the city government to walk around with the standard unit of measurement on their person. So they would usually have a thing that was a foot or a thing that was a pound. And they would walk around with that on them and then they would check to make sure that everyone was following the right rules in terms of this is a foot, this is a pound, etc. If you're found to not be following the rules, the punishments could be very severe indeed. But usually most conflicts over this kind of thing and contract disputes were dealt with in an earnest and direct fashion. Again, the fact that the legal system of the Middle Ages evolved out of a system of civil courts based on mediation meant that this sort of arbitration conflict was exactly suited to the legal system as it existed, and everyone was pretty comfortable with dealing with it. There were some kinds of business regulation that the city government of the Middle Ages had trouble with. We might call these consumer protections. In this area, the city set laws that attempted to regulate the cost and quality of products. In the received narrative, the best case study for how these regulations functioned can be seen in the case of bread. Remember, bread was critical to the diet of the time, and so a person who could not afford bread was considered to be on the brink of starvation. As a result, fluctuations in the price of bread could not be shrugged off. People's lives were at stake. When combined with the lack of any kind of abstract theory of market forces, and the kind of generalized social aversion to change of any kind that we discussed in earlier episodes, the result that was that changes in price were often viewed with hostility and were felt to be some sort of nefarious thing. Blame often fell on the baker. 
As a result of this popular anger and the violence that often followed, city governments set up a progressively draconian series of laws regulating the price of a loaf of bread. But often, the bakers weren't changing prices out of pure caprice, they were responding to changing costs of procuring grain that resulted from the precarious agricultural practices of their civilization. The inevitable result was that the bakers started selling smaller loaves, and when this was banned, bakers began adulterating their bread with lower-cost alternatives to flour, some of which were poisonous. In this received narrative, there are two morals. First, the consumer regulations were a failure because of the ignorance displayed towards the laws of economics. The inevitable unintended consequences were worse than the original situation. Second, even as the regulations were counterproductive, we are told that the continuous complaints about the bakers cheating shows that city governments were incapable of actually enforcing their regulations. While a lot of this narrative is actually true, there's a couple problems with this received narrative for our story. The biggest issues resolve around timelines. Much of the evidence we have of this kind of draconian regulation and widespread civil complaint come from the later Middle Ages and even into the early modern and even into the Industrial Revolution. So for our purposes, we can discard most of this story as just coming from later on. What's accurate for our time period is that bread was considered an absolutely vital commodity and that its production was regulated. But the story beyond that is a bit more opaque. As we've discussed, it is my view that medieval cities evolved from medieval villages in a long process. In the villages, as we've discussed, baking was generally a monopoly granted by the lord. Part of that deal between the baker and the lord involved stipulations regarding the quality of the bread. Peasants would continually complain that the baker and the miller were cheating them, and this seems likely, but focusing on that aspect of things seems to ignore a much bigger question about how the regulation of baking interacted with the urbanization process. After all, it wouldn't be too long before the village grew into a town and got to the point where it was impractical to have only one baker. When in this process was a second baker permitted by the lord, and what did this competition do to the market? It seems likely to me that, at least early on, the second and third bakers were entirely illegal due to the numerous court records we have in which peasant families and villages were fined for baking illegally, you know, in their own homes. As towns grew, it became harder for the lord to keep tabs on everyone, and it seems likely to me that the monopoly of the baker broke down. As this happened, undoubtedly competition would drive good behavior in times when grain was easily available, and would drive shortcuts in times when grain was hard to find. That said, and just to be very clear, I've been able to find almost no evidence of this unfolding process during urbanization. All we have are records from rural villages and then from urban areas regulating numerous bakers starting towards the end of our time period. One thing we do know is that an awful lot of the consumer protection regulation that was in place was actually privatized. It was the guilds that set standards of production in most markets, and it was a matter of personal pride for the craftsmen of the time to live up to these standards. A master craftsman who was convicted by the guild of a serious breach of quality standards faced extreme consequences that included fines, corporal punishment, social ostracism, and ultimately the loss of their livelihood. On the flip side, there were a lot of forces that disincentivized corner cutting and even just innovation at this time. The guild allowed and even enforced competition at a sustainable pace. The markets were closed to new entrants, and all participants in the guild were supposed to make products in the same general way, with only individual skill differentiating between merchants. When you take into account the general aversion to change in medieval culture, most merchants would generally follow guild regulations cheerfully. 
Finally, we know that most craftsmen conducted their business in the full view of the public. As we discussed in the last episode, most workshops were located on the ground floor with big open windows facing the street for the completely practical purpose that the craftsmen and their assistants needed light to work, and there was no other affordable source of light other than the sun at that time. As a side effect of this, members of the public were constantly watching what a craftsman was doing. This probably did a lot to keep craftsmen honest, more than a lot of historians uh, take into account, since any shortcuts would be reported very quickly to the guild by the very people who were the customers, and who were just walking by at any given time. Some businesses resist this kind of vigilance, baking and milling being top of the list, just because they're not necessarily exposed out to the public. When combined with the general suspicion of these professions felt by the peasant migrants to these cities, and the importance of their products to life and limb, it's probably understandable that people viewed these professions with suspicion. But it's worth remembering that baking was not a typical business. In most areas, the guild system functioned as well as we can probably expect in protecting customers, at least given the lack of other institutions. In summary, the ability of city governments to protect consumers is very opaque. We lack a lot of the documentation that we have for later eras. It seems likely that there was a process where the monopolies of the manorial village broke down during the urbanization process, but we have little evidence of how this process happened. The end result was the guild system, which did a decent job of protecting the consumer due to its draconian laws, a culture of pride in work, and the fact that most work was done in full view of the public. The received narrative, which is focused on food adulteration concerns, focuses on a later period. During our period, in the early Middle Ages, the population size and density was still growing and it had not yet begun to stress the ecological capacity of the countryside. As a result, we can probably expect that the environment of the new urban areas provided as many incentives for good behavior as for bad. But this situation was precarious, based on a generally friendly environment, and was based on self-policing of industry by craftsmen and observant members of the public. As medieval cities continued to grow, this situation was likely to change. So what does this tell us? What conclusions can we draw about living conditions in early medieval cities? More broadly, what does the wider narrative I have shared about the growth of medieval cities tell us about the class system of the Middle Ages, about life in the Middle Ages? And finally, what the heck does all this have to do with the Protestant Reformation? The first thing I want to say in terms of today's episode is that I think it's safe to say that none of us would want to live in a medieval city. Many of the institutions, technologies, and mindsets that we take for granted were absent in these settlements, and these institutions, technologies, and mindsets are, as it turns out, absolutely critical to keeping a huge portion of us alive. Beyond mere survival, we would find the medieval city smelly, physically uncomfortable, lacking in privacy, and fairly threatening. For people native to the Middle Ages, however, the view was undoubtedly different. These cities had a negative domestic rate of population growth, we know, due to illness, violence, etc., And despite that, in the years from 700 to 1348, the record is a pretty clear one of steady population growth. That means people were moving there from the countryside. People wanted to live there. It was probably economic opportunity that drew them, combined with the dangers of a life on the land, and maybe, to some extent, the social disability of life as a peasant in the feudal system. But we find that all three classes flocked to the cities, the commoners, the clergy, and the nobility. They were places of power, wealth, and prestige for the upper classes. For lower classes, some of these issues must have been at play as well, and for the clergy they were places of learning, as we'll address in later episodes. 
Within these cities, life could be hard, but was probably not too different in terms of living conditions from the countryside. Indeed, food may have been easier to attain for those with any kind of economic stability in the cities than it was in the countryside. More importantly, the feudal system of interpersonal ties was clearly in evidence, binding people into a citywide social structure of family ties and alliances. These ties would have helped mitigate the chaos that could come from weak institutions and an ad hoc legal system, even as it drove some of those sources of violence. This is probably the biggest thing to take away. For people in the Middle Ages, society was not a huge and abstract thing. It was deeply intimate and personal, even something as abstract as a city. From the customer chatting with a blacksmith outside his shop, to a king in his retinue, reputation, loyalty, and friendship were deeply important and were the main things tying society together, because there really was nothing else. As we move forward, new forces are going to come into play. Ideology and bureaucracy are going to emerge as new forces that begin to shape the society. When society pushes back against these forces, often the complaint we will hear most often is that the people who were sent to enact these new policies, these new forces, were people that no one had ever met before. They were outsiders that no one knew, and they came in and tried to impose something alien. As conservative as medieval society was, it was often not the new idea that they objected to. It was the presence of these new people. I'm going to leave it here for now. Just a few pieces of housekeeping before we go. First, I'm going to try and do some tinkering on the archive this month. Apple Podcast is finally allowing us to tag our episodes as history-related, so I need to go and do that. While I'm at it, I've been meaning to go back and split the show into seasons, and also tweak the numbering system. I'll update you all with how it goes next time out, but if the entire archive suddenly goes up in flames, you'll know something went wrong. In terms of the next episodes, we are very, very close to the end of these social history things. I have just two more topics I need to address before we wrap up, and both help us transition nicely into our look at the investiture controversy. Up next time is going to be a look at a day in the life of the clergy. Now, I'm pretty sure I said forever ago that I was going to do a day in the life of the clergy, and then I didn't. But what I seem to remember is that what happened is that I realized that I couldn't talk about how a parish priest lived without talking about village life for the peasants. And then after I talked about village life, I had to talk about urban commoners too. So now's the time for me to go back and do that episode. After that, I'm going to finish up this look at the class system with a look at the nature of kingship. Kings kind of constituted a fourth class in the Middle Ages, and it's the way that medieval societies thought about their kings, as much as how they thought about their church, that would come into conflict during the investiture controversy. And then the investiture controversy sets up a lot of stuff that has to do with the Protestant Reformation. But as to what it actually has to do with the Protestant Reformation, well, you're just going to have to keep listening to find out as we continue our journey towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. First up, we have Patreon. <clears throat> First up. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.